away from Arcadia. Today, we are going to be doing one of our book reviews to go along with our canon walkthrough of Changeling the Dreaming, and we're going to be talking about In Anime, The Secret Way. Because we've previously done an episode all about just In Anime in the world, this is going to be a pretty quick look at the book from a review quality standpoint. So as you're listening to us walk through the canon and seeing our references to which books we got the information from, you can decide whether or not the book is worth picking up. Simon, what is in anime The Secret Way? Secret Way is a 1998 White Wolf publication. Is your copy color? Mine isn't. No, it's not. This was definitely after they moved to black and white. Okay, so it's in that era of Changeling, and the developer was Ian Lemke. The book advertises itself as, During the age of myth, everything in the world was born with the capacity to dream. Everything had the potential to be alive. Though many parts of the world have forgotten how to dream, some refugees still remember. The inanime, the last children of the great slow empires, now sprawl across the earth in mute, immobile ruins. And we're going to be talking about how well they achieved that vision. And this is going to be in the context of probably our Sundering, Shattering, and Resurgence War metaplot discussions. This book really touches on those three things a lot. It gets far more into the Accordance War than I would expect it to. That's one of the first thematic things that kind of jumped out at me as odd, The book has a lot of really cool ideas. It introduces these new elemental changelings to the world. They're changelings, as I've always read it, whereas other fae went through the changeling way and bound themselves up in meat bodies to protect themselves. The inanime bound themselves up in elemental bodies to protect themselves from banality. That might be a bit of headcanon, the timing of when they bound themselves to these elemental bodies in the book seems to point to it happening earlier than that, but that's been my read on it. It paints the inanime history as mostly bound up in their own personal conflict and their courts, which are Gladeling and Crafted, or as it's spelled in The Secret Way, Crofted. And it being sort of a tension between change and, I'll say, tradition. Then they get involved in a bunch of other Cathane politics, including the Accordance War. Simon, what were your thoughts on this part of the book? I guess I'd say the first third that's setting in history. The first third is, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. It's written from a series of perspective characters, and I think all of them? Or at the very least, like 99% of them are Cathane. I don't know if all of them are, but the perspective of those Cathane is very specific because I think they're all nobles. 
So you're getting the history of the inanime from that perspective, and you never really get it from the inanime themselves, which contributes to one of the book's major problems. I'm going to preface this with I actually like this book overall, but this is a review, and critique sounds harsh, but because of the perspective that this book is written from for the history, it has a serious defaultism problem where everything about the inanime is spun to fit the history and story of the Concordian changelings, which introduces a lot of problems. This is my biggest problem with the inanime. And really, I'm just going to say it, the whole book is incredibly colonialist. The entire book centers on the inanime and an old European narrative. The crafted, not crafted divide is very centered on a Prometheus myth, where the salamanders, who are the flame inanime, gifted fire to humanity, and it was terrible. All of the connection to the broader changeling world is all about the Accordance War. It's almost all 90% of the Cathane inanime crossover centers on their place in the Accordance War. And all of these old oaths with the Cathane, some of them going back millennia. They specifically call out millennia old oaths. Except at this point in the canon, the Accordance War was a uniquely American phenomenon. There was a separate war that's like mentioned and never fully developed that happened in Europe along similar lines. But where that's written up, it developed in different ways because Europe is these multiple countries. The Accordance War and King David and Caliburn was an American phenomenon. And I know some people don't like that and they want to make Concordia global. Okay, if you want to do that at your table, you you can do that. But we have to read the published text in the context of the published narrative. And saying that the inanime have millennia-old oaths to the Cathane, creating a setting where they cannot leave their anchors. They are bound in place in a way other changelings except the Gilly do are not. And giving them such a strong allegiance tied to these millennia-old oaths explicitly in the Accordance War in a game where the Nunyahi exist, I had a hard time reading it. Like, it made me kind of angry. <laughs> I, I don't know if the authors or the dev actually thought better of it, but much, much later in the book, they introduce a title character, Red Mountain Woman, who's like this gloam who remembers the Nunahi and is trying to broker peace between the Nunahi and the Cathane, and I'm not going to pretend there aren't problems with that particular story, but it's the only place in the book where they contextualize the in anime as having a relationship with the Nunahi. So it seems like they're trying to like at the very edges be like, but also there's this, but they're not doing a good job of it. Well, and it really the thing I have the hardest time with is because the inanime represent the natural world. They represent the land. And the land and ownership of the land is so significant to 
the relationship between settler culture and indigenous culture and the violence that was enacted on indigenous peoples, like it isn't just kind of an accidental white narrative, like it hits the most painful chord from every discussion I've ever seen of this issue. And I mean, huge asterisks, I'm a white guy, so I'm only sharing the limited perspective that I have on this. But at the bare minimum, like I see nothing but red flags here <laughs> where this yeah. needs to be inspected by people who do know the full dynamics. Right. Even getting a little bit more Concordia-centric, because the perspective of the history of the anime is written from a noble perspective, you only ever get the anime sided with the Shi during the Resurgence War for reasons. And there's one little sidebar where there's another perspective character who gets like about a paragraph to say, well, actually the water elementals were on the commoner's side. But that is very much an afterthought in the same style as Red Mountain Woman is. And I will say the narrative around the Accordance War, if you just pluck it out of America and put it in Europe, if you were running your game in in Europe with the history of the version of the Accordance War that happened there, the whole narrative works at that point. You know, I have some quibbles about how the commoners and the nobles are represented as well, but the big structural problem does go away at that point. It's not like the core idea is bad. It's just the fact that the writers were writing from a place of presumed whiteness in this setting is really prevalent. Getting away from the Resurgence War, though, the bigger picture in anime history is one where, as we mentioned, the salamanders teach humans how to shape the world around them by giving them the gift of controlled fire, which isn't a consistent point throughout this book. There are numerous mentions of this all being salamander hubris because they believe they could not possibly be crofted. And, oh no, the very first salamander to be crofted is a gas stove, which is a very weirdly inconsistent point with their own narrative about the chattering and the interregnum. There's a, a sort of paired detail with that. When they were first introducing this idea of how the salamanders used to be, they talked about how in the beginning times they flowed through these different anchors you know, volcanoes, or they give a few examples. One of the examples is campfires. In this same sentence, it's like they flowed through, bam, bam, campfires, and then they gifted fire to humans, and these things progressed. And I was just like, wait, what? Um, Prometheus myth is pretty straightforward. If there's a campfire, someone made it, and that involves shaping fire, that would be a crofted salamander and the, i mean the other thing is it's explicitly stated at one point that the reason the other in anime are so angry with the salamanders and i like this plot point i like this example of it but the reason they're so angry is because crafting of all of the other types of in anime came from the human's mastery of fire 
fire ran the early gas chainsaws. Fire involved burning forests to clear area for agriculture. It goes on and on. You know, smelting is dynamite used to create... Dynamite carves up mountains. Dynamite carves up mountains. Forges melt down iron. I mean, it's a good metaphor. It's probably one of the best thematic metaphors in the game. But then they have this whole thing about how late in the crafting war, suddenly salamanders were shaped. They were suddenly crafted, and it was a huge surprise to them. And I went... The entire crux of the conflict here requires salamanders to have been crafted first. Like, it requires it. Like, it was such an intense cognitive dissonance as I read it. And that also gets into the difficulty with the Inanime's court system. It's interpreted in multiple different ways in the book, but the Gladelings and the Crofted have this tension the crofted view themselves as being the future of the inanime that's going to help them survive the coming winter and because gladelings usually die when their anchors are crafted they don't like that idea very much but the game never really decides quite what is a crafted anchor see also whether or not a campfire is controlled fire it also inconsistently describes whether or not the crafted have access to the dreaming itself. There's one explicit reference where it says they don't, and then there are multiple that say they do. It speaks to a lack of unified vision in this book. I will say there's an outline of a conflict here that is really interesting. I used the anime a lot. The core social dynamics in the book, a lot of them work. You have to pick which ones you want to execute because, as with a lot of Changeling books, what's written in the first third doesn't line up with what's written in the middle, doesn't line up with what's written in the end. So read it and decide which version you like the most. It's just, you can't get into the details. You, I think what it really boils down to is, this is a great storyteller book. Because as a storyteller, you get to read it, shake the cobwebs out of your head from trying to figure out what you just read, and then go, okay, I'm going to decide the version of this that matters at my table, and just, I will create my own consistency and present it to my players. It, it works for that, and there are a lot of great ideas for mining. It's a terrible player book. As a player, if I were to read this book and then go, cool, I'm going to come to a table, sit down, and feel like... I know how my storyteller is going to run this. I would have no idea. I would have to have a totally separate debrief with the storyteller and be like, okay, which of the like four versions of the anime that are sort of woven into this are you actually running? And that to me is not the sign of a successful player book. <laughs> Yeah, I was talking to a friend who's a big werewolf buff about this book as I was reading it for this, because there's a, a reference to a, a silly episode that's a hook for a werewolf game in this book that I've been looking for for years, and I couldn't remember what book it was in. And I said, oh, I finally found that reference. Here it is. Here's the page number in this book. And they were like, oh, do you recommend that I get this for like my werewolf game? Should I read this? And I said, well, 
if you're planning on screwing with player preconceptions, yes. If you're going to be looking for a complete thought that you can pick up and stick in your game, no. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's pretty fair. I will say one of the things I like the most about this book is I really like most of the one-off hooks that they sprinkle through the book. This is something I really like in a gaming book where there's kind of a, a soft world building where an idea is presented that can just be narrative. It doesn't create contradictions with the system and it just gives you an idea to run with and that they put as many of those in the text and weave them in elegantly as possible. Some books I pick up and there are a lot of them where I'm like, oh, I see what you were trying to do here, but like it, that actually creates contradictions or like that doesn't work with the systems. I now have to re-architect things. A lot of the hooks in this book aren't like that. They're cool ideas. One that stood out to me was this idea that the last minute of the year, all the dolls disappear into that minute and live an entire day. And that this is how they get a bunch of information about everyone else. It's clearly kind of framed an unreliable narrator. Maybe it exists. Maybe it doesn't. It's a cool thing. I could do a whole, you know, brief campaign centered on the political mire of the information that a bunch of mannequins mine in this process. There's a whole thing about the mannequin ambassadors who always show up in black and the relationship everyone else has with them. I really like that. I pulled it out and used it very quickly. Like it was a cool hook. It doesn't contradict anything. This book has a lot of that. Like there's a lot of juicy stuff to mine, but it doesn't paint a whole picture for a person who needs to like read it and move forward and not put in the lift that an ST puts in. That's a really good segue into talking about the system that's in this book, because the system, at least in my opinion, is probably the weakest point. The narrative up to this point, the places where it's been most problematic apart from the defaultism, the worst parts are generally the parts that line up with system. The courts are difficult to deal with. The seemings are difficult to deal with. And the seemings are probably the worst example of the two because in the character creation section, there's a discussion about their seemings, their jeu, and then about... One or two headers later, there's a section about aging, and this is in the, the second edition period where seeming and age are actually linked. The section under aging directly contradicts the system that's described under jeu. It's an issue because you have to pick which version of aging they're going to get or make a new one up because it's C20 and seemings aren't linked to age anymore. But there's a huge naughty problem there that's because it's part of the system and seeming, so it's pretty core. You have to unravel if you're going to use an anime in a game as a player. Especially with the seeming thing, that gets into some contradictions later in the book, like in the two-page splat write-ups, a couple of the phyla, which is the term they use for an anime kith, have specific text that indicates they have problems with their husks. It's kind of weird. The gloms, the stone in anime, in their childer seeming, 
are described as not being able to hold on to their husks. And I read that and I went, what does that mean? Like, I looked at the aging system and there's nothing in there to reflect that. Do they get bored and they go back? That doesn't feel very stone thematic. Stone is steady. Stone is consistent. Are they really rough and tumble maybe because they're used to being boulders and the husks by nature of having to move around are like not that durable like i could i could like force it into a shape but there was no lift done to paint the picture of whatever it is the writer meant and it's not reflected in the system later with the salamanders it was like oh they burn through their husks super quickly because they're flame is this a frailty do they do damage to themselves it wasn't. And I'm like, what does this mean? Like, I know there's limited word count, but just like one or two sentences to give some context to those statements or something in the system that could address in anime that burn through their husks faster or slower. But there's nothing. And it's, yeah, the whole aging and husk system is really strange. I think there's a really good place in the game for kind of a variable aging system because I can see how the husk thing works in the context of the dryads because natural cycles, trees grow, they're green for part of the year, they're not green for part of the year. That kind of makes sense, but then there are evergreens, there are plants that aren't trees. Then you get into the other phyla and you get into geological time, and none of that makes any sense. You get into the fire elementals, and there's not really any actual metaphor for them there. There's a metaphor for the fire elementals that I could see that isn't based on that kind of slow cycle, but on a very quick, like a salamander creates a husk, and it's a very quick burn, because they just burn through things, and they're bright, and they're vibrant actually playing through what that system would look like would be kind of terrible. It'd be a great storyteller tool, which again, the inanime and all of their manifestations, as much as I love them, I've played them, they're a better storyteller tool. The things that make that work in my mind, I just can't see inflicting on players. As a player construct, the inanime husk thing is probably my biggest problem. From a game design standpoint, I just really hate those gimme backgrounds that World of Darkness loves. Like, I kind of object to Generation and Vampire because it's, well, I'm going to sink all my points in this because you kind of need it. Husk is the same way. Avatar isn't as bad an offender, but it's still kind of there. Especially in a game like Changeling, if you're playing a, a minority in anime game where like one of your players isn't an anime and everybody else is Cathane you're really at a disadvantage with husks because your husk really limits your ability to move through the human world. It's punishing in a way that isn't fun. That kind of gets back to a lot of the systems in this book. They created this dynamic where a husk's lifetime kind of roughly translates to a changeling lifetime. And then you could come back and rebuild your husk. And if you get lucky, you get to rebuild it very quickly. So that sort of takes the place of chimerical death, where you might die several times over your mortal lifetime. 
And then when a changeling's meat would die and they have to actually be reincarnated and it takes a while for chrysalis, the equivalent to that is Solumnance, which is the long sleep for the inanimates. It's very clear they were trying to create a similar life cycle, but you have to rebuild your husk every time that you go through those quick deaths, and husk is a background that you just purchase. It would have been a lot more interesting and a lot less obligatory if husk building were an ability. If you didn't take it, you were only rolling... I don't know, dexterity, whatever whatever that ability would pair with, to rebuild your husk. And it could be a character thing about whether or not you care to create a really nice husk. And maybe occasionally you die and you need to get back into the world very quickly and you don't have time to build a perfect husk. And what does that look like when you've spent the last, you know, three years being flawless and passing and now you can't pass because you're, you don't have time? Like, there's a whole bunch of really interesting narrative juice there and they're just like background done the solemnance they actually built what feels like an in-game system for that long death even though it results in really anti-thematic dynamics where the more glamour you have the less banality you can get rid of weirdest thing i've ever seen it takes place over years and i can only think of one or one or two chronicles i've ever been in where that would even be applicable but they systematized it anyway when it should have been an ST thing. The flaws have a similar problem. The flaws in this are just not usable. There's one yeah, like the merits oh. aren't great either. There's one flaw. It's like a five point flaw. And basically it's like you live the cycle of the year. In winter, you go into slumber, you're kind of sluggish in autumn, and it's a five point flaw. And I went, This isn't playable. So you literally just die. You retire your character if a chronicle goes into that period. If you're in the sort of game that, let's be honest, most people run, which is like a five to ten session game, then the storyteller is just going to look at that and be like, well, you spent five points on that. I either give you five freebies for the lulls or I'm sticking this game in autumn. No storyteller is going to like being forced into that kind of decision making. Then there's another one where you take a one to three point flaw and it takes away one to three dots worth of soak. Where it's like, wait, so I'm either taking this for three points and I don't even have three points of stamina, or I've invested the attribute points in three dots of stamina and I'm only getting three freebies back. Literally no one would do that. Like, no player would do that math and be like, yes, I want that. Yeah, there's a I mean, I mean, there's a husk merit where you drop, I think it's one to three points on your, your merit to have one to three points of husk. Yeah. Why would you do that? That is literally the same thing as taking points of husk. Yeah, it's really strange. The systems in this book are all kind of like that. The exception are the treasures. There are a few pages of treasures, and I like them. They're interesting and thematic. They're well thought out. I liked the treasures a lot, actually. But all the actual like system system stuff, the arts yeah. are super duplicative with the game as a whole. They're awkward. It's And it's worth mentioning that the arts in this book 
are a step up from the arts for the inanime in C20. Because they're, yeah. like, at least they're semi-thematic and semi-functional. In C20, it's Unleash or Die. Well, Unleash or Die and break the actual unleashing rules. Like, it's, yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No one's really written a great set of rules for powers for the inanime outside of Dark Ages Fae, where they just get the same powers as everyone else. There's a whole thing in here about the slivers, their their arts, that each group can't take. And really, I think if you want to run the inanime, the best thing you can do is just let them take arts and give them one or two banned arts. Like, say, okay, you're an undyne, you are not taking pyromancy. That's not happening. And they also have a relationship between the phyla and the seasons. So there's an interesting thematic thing you could do with the seasonal arts. So you're an undyne, so you can't take summer. You know, you can use some of that. It does map forward, but just putting a couple restrictions on them. But beyond that saying, you use the same arts and realms as everyone else because we actually want to play this game. That's the only real usable approach for them. And in this book, they have their own unique bunk system, which is a very good example of what went wrong with the old second edition bunk system. The bunk system for the anime is called Materials. And if you think about bunks as D&D spell components, normal changelings usually have like verbal or somatic component spells. The anime only have to do somatic material components. You end up with a thing where if the realm that governs the cantrip you're trying to do is Earth, you need to have rare minerals on your person that you can fashion into something else in order to fire your cantrip. Which is thematic, I'll give it that, but it doesn't balance with the rest of them, particularly air, because with air, any moving wind counts. So the earth user has to carry around gold or pyrite or something and be able to like real quick do something to it. The air user can whistle a jaunty tune and their cantrip is worth just as many points. It's probably the only place where the C20 version of something that's in this book is better. We've done a fair bit of critique and calling out the stuff in the book that's that's frustrating. What's your favorite part of the book? This is a book that has a lot of really good half-built ideas in it. I like the general shape of the anime. I'm not a huge fan of the execution in this book. I like the idea that there are uh, changelings that became changelings by merging with something other than humans because the perspective of dreaming is that the world is essentially animist. That makes sense. The execution is spotty throughout dreaming on that idea, but like it logically follows. It makes sense. It's a place that needs to be filled in in the game. I like the idea that the politics of the Fae revolves more around natural cycles than it does some 
grand conflict between two abstract courts that are variously defined the way the Seelie and the Unseelie are. Because the Fae and the sense of pre-monotheism gods are really intimately linked with the cycles of the natural world and trying to make sense of them. It's like everything that this book is trying to do, I really like. It's just, it very frequently falls short for me. There are a couple really interesting broad ideas that exist in outline in this book, but are never explicitly invoked. One of the details of the crofting war is the salamanders give fire to humanity, and it's terrible. It's a very European narrative, but okay. And the phyla that react to that the most negatively are the gloams. And they imprison the salamanders. They have a puppet salamander running the salamander kingdom. They've kicked out all the other salamanders. They are the oppressors of fire. And I think that that was just meant to be, oh, the gloams are the most resistant to change. They're the stone doesn't like to change. But there's this fascinating metaphor about volcanoes and geysers and fossil fuels hidden under the earth. What if it wasn't just incidental naivete? What if the salamanders had always been imprisoned by the gloams? And part of giving fire to humanity was realizing that humanity would finally release them and set those things aflame and allow them to come to life again. By putting those two groups in opposition to each other, there's this amazing narrative that is just created in white space. It's never invoked. And it's so perfect that I have a hard time thinking that like at some point someone didn't say, oh, that's why the gloam should oppress fire. At the same time, like, I can't believe that they would say that and then never actually use it. So maybe it's an accident. I, I kind of feel like this this book is a string of beautiful, perfect accidents. More concretely, I really like the storyteller characters they introduce in this book. They are interesting and distinct, and they're like one or two paragraph descriptions are basically all you need to go with because you're never really going to use the inanime systems as written anyway. I particularly enjoyed Mr. Punch because Punch and Judy's always been kind of gross and they just leaned right on into that. Yeah, like if I had to pick like a concrete part of this book that I enjoyed a lot, it's the storyteller characters. Yeah, I have to admit, and I think this is partially my bias in the way I use the inanime, the storyteller characters were kind of interesting, but for me, whenever I write an inanime NPC, they're such a mechanism of place that none of the storyteller characters really mapped to that for me. You know, two of the inanime I put in my game recently, one was Lake Michigan, and I had her as basically one of the last true fae, true fae wandering the world. She wielded phenomenal cosmic power, but of course had capricious motivations and wasn't a direct antagonist. She was more setting the scene. But like, it's all about 
place as identity. And I didn't get that. You know, I did another one who was a very nurturing fire in anime, you know, to sort of use that gas stove metaphor. While I hate that as the first crafting example, it's it's a good anchor example. And I had her running basically a whole freehold, not as the freeholder, but as the one making everything really work. And it was about the place. She was the personality of the place. I don't know. I didn't quite get that from the write-ups. And that might just be my particular perspective. Well, that's kind of the genius of this whole uh, secret way, like, thesis is if you're going to use an anime in your game as a storyteller, they are taking the setting, taking the scene, and turning it into an actor. And there's just infinite space to do something cool with that. I mean, that's that's the real strength of this book, you know, execution aside. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I also think there are a couple really interesting character pieces. Again, I don't necessarily love how they're built out, but like with the Kubera... When you get to their two-page flat write-up, they talk about the fact that they're all about growth. And in the modern world, they become obsessed with becoming financiers. They love money, which there's an easy green joke there. But in reality, when you think about being a metaphor for growth, and then if you're crafted, and I just immediately thought about all the like perfectly curated bonsai trees that you saw in a very particular corporate aesthetic and the sort of false greenery. It's again, one of those things where they don't finish the thought. They just say, oh yes, all Kubera. And they don't draw a difference between crofted and gladling. They don't use it as an opportunity to create a crafted Kubera culture. The beginning of that thought is there, and I think it's a brilliant thought. I love when changelings are set in the world we live in. It's one of the things when we did the review of 8 Million Dreams that I was kind of frustrated by is it was all 100% mythic. It didn't straddle that line of taking the mythic and putting it in our lived world. I actually think this book does that very well. And I think it's because the cropped attention is part of the main story they chose to tell. So I think that's also one of the big strengths of the book is giving good examples of what that looks like. Just like... The Gloam's objections to crofting. The points are made up and the score doesn't matter. What era of the changeling metaplot development do you think this book really fits into? In terms of when it was published, it definitely falls in late second era. But it doesn't really invoke any of the plot that's relevant to those eras. It doesn't talk about the Fomorians it really kind of ignores the details of the mythic age, which is a thing that's dealt with in C20. They're actually put in that context later. In terms of development, definitely second era, but it only barely matters. Yeah, my general impression was that it was kind of first-ish. There are mentions of the Shadow Court and the Seelie and the Unseelie, and they're definitely sticking to the Shadow Court is very banal level of that. But it's all, it's very light touch. We've obviously talked about this a lot, so it won't come as a 
surprise to anyone, but in terms of the system being functional, one through five, where would you put this, Simon? Two and a half? It uses a lot of the same system as the rest of Changeling, and that stuff works as well as it ever did. And some of the new stuff works, like the the slivers work. They may not be my favorite thing, but they work. And then there are lots of things that I don't really think work as intended. The husk background's kind of, eh. The seemings are confusingly delineated in different ways and generally make the anime player very difficult to deal with in a in a primarily meat game. The harvesting is difficult because you're either running it with the anime has basically unlimited glamour if you're near their anchor and a very hard time getting glamour if they're anywhere else. So it's the system works question mark. Yeah, I think I would in terms of system, I would actually give this a two. I have run this as a storyteller. I've used an anime as, as a storyteller multiple times, and I ignore the entire system because it's not useful. I basically go, what does this an anime need to do in this scene? How do they need to behave? What do they need to represent? Cool. That's all I'm doing. As a player... I can't imagine traversing this. I mean, the only reason it has a two is because Simon's right. The slivers work, but they feel much more restrictive than the arts. And like, why would I want that for a PC class? The realms are weird. We didn't talk about them a lot, but they have a elemental aligned realms and a lot of the anime specific stuff like solemnance doesn't really work like why is it systematized the other thing that gives it a two and keeps it from being a one or like the treasures which are systematized are pretty good yeah overall it's a set of ideas you should golden rule and improv with is this cohesive with other dreaming products i mean that's the thing is like thematically it works the problem comes up when you bump into some of those half-finished thoughts and you have to finish them yourself, and if you extrapolate from what they've already written, you get to a place where it isn't cohesive with the rest of the game anymore. The whole thing with husks just makes everything very difficult. The thing with anchors makes things very difficult. Their access to the dreaming is unparalleled except for maybe the denizens and in a mixed game that has the potential to break things there's just a lot of unanswered and i think unconsidered questions so what would you give it in terms of a number uh i think it's another 2.5 like good effort but i want to see the second draft this number is totally different for me when i'm doing it as a storyteller as opposed to when i'm doing this as a player as a storyteller i'd actually give this a four if you set your game in europe i'd give it a two if you set your game in america pretending that oaths existed on american soil with cathane a thousand years ago is not a thing that's coherent with the canon it's just not and everything else kind of grows from that in a lot of ways when we're talking about the connection to the rest of changeling as a player 
I have to give it a two, though, for all the reasons that Simon gave. It's thematically consistent. It's not consistent in a detailed enough way that a player can pick it up and know what they're doing with it. So did you enjoy reading this? This is all over the place. I definitely enjoyed reading parts of it. You know, getting over the defaultism, I like the first third of the book. There are some consistency issues, but less than a lot of Changeling books I've read, that enjoyment fell off a cliff as soon as I got to the two-page splats in character creation. There were just so many little moments that didn't track and just drew me out of my reading once I got to the two-page splats. So overall, I'd say probably a three. My favorite parts of the book actually kind of get up towards a four. I love the fiction. Fiction in this book is better than I think any other Changeling book I've read except for maybe Warren Concordia. So the, the fiction's maybe up at a four. All the flavor from the two-page splats on is two, though, at best. Yeah, it's a little all over the place. Yeah, yeah, I don't really disagree. The The defaultism is a huge problem in the history section, but it's not it's not necessarily badly written. It's just it lacks another viewpoint to like help the reader contextualize which parts of it are the perspective character's perspective and which parts are things that may have actually happened that way. That is a big oversight. Like I'm not trying to minimize that, but from a technical perspective, the writing is pretty competent. The character creation section, really anytime you get into rules based stuff was where my enjoyment of this book took a dive. It's a three. Like it kind of, goes down to a, a two sometimes, goes up to a four sometimes. The biggest things that like drew me out of this book were either consistency nitpicks, the defaultism thing, or their weird emphasis in the first third of the book of the, the fire bad narrative. Because that's boring. So that gets us to aesthetic value. What did you think of the book? visually you know visually it's it's kind of a four like it's not color which would have helped but there are a few pieces where i like looked at them and i was like i'm not exactly sure what's going on here it's just giving me a feeling but i don't know what this is a picture of and there were a lot where i was like oh no that makes sense i, I actually like this picture so it's kind of a four for me what about you I'd give it a four as well. I actually think the art in this book is pretty outstanding for the black and white era. This is clearly the period where they were trying to do cost cutting. There's one particular artist who has a very entirely pencil sketchy style. And it's clearly very quick, but it's also stunning, even though the medium is very apparent. And it's very dreamy and it captures that kind of removed feeling there were one or two places where the art was very very out of sync with the text but the art itself was still very high quality and i think that was just a, a miscommunication on art notes it happens yeah the only real thing that would make this better is if it had been in color and that just wasn't in the cards at this point in games development if you had to say who should buy this book who do you think should buy this book 
I think really anyone who likes the idea of a completely inhuman natural world changeling should buy this book. It has its problems and its quibbles, but the core idea is really interesting and it opens a lot of doors for what you can do with changeling. I think it's kind of a must have for an actual collector. I think that if you were reading C20, you got to the Galane section, you saw the first couple of lines of the Inanime section, got really excited, and then read the Inanime section and got really frustrated. This book is for you. This book is better than the C20 version in almost every way. Those were our review-type thoughts of Secret Way. We will also link to our old, longer discussion about the Inanime's place in Changeling the Dreaming from this episode in the description. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank my co-host, Victor, for putting up with me bitching about a lot of stuff that didn't matter in this book. Hopefully you will listen to us again. 